as has already been expressed this morning, we are grateful for the presence of, of everyone that is here to worship God with us, especially our guests and our visitors. And we hope that you have found our worship thus far to be encouraging, scriptural, and that which directs all of the glory to God. Rebecca Knight wrote for the Harvard Business Review, and she said, first impressions are important. In fact, we start making judgments about people within nanoseconds as soon as we encounter them. Forbes wrote an article that countered hers or that basically went along with her saying, yes, first impressions are important. And if you intend to build a brand or a company of any kind, there are some things you should know about first impressions. First impressions should speak to what your brand is. They should encourage and educate and they should ultimately hope to convert or draw others in. The Bible introduces God to us in its first line as the creator of the heavens and the earth. Genesis 1 and verse 1 says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And that's because what someone says to you about themselves right out in the beginning of the meeting, their first words say a lot about what's important to them. And when we encounter God in scripture, the first thing that he tells us is he's the creator of the heavens and the earth. When God appeared at the end of the book of Job as the frustrated patriarch summoned him to this court trial, if you will, God responds in Job 38 verses 4 through 7 by saying he created the heavens and the earth with all of their detail and their precision. And he also encourages Job to appreciate how he orders those things and controls them. Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, as he talked to people about the need to not worry and to trust God, pointed to creation and the fact that as God oversaw the lilies and the flowers and everything in his creation, he would also take care of the crown of his creation, which is humanity. Though Darwin and Dawkins and others have tried to convince people that we're here by accident and that God didn't create the world, the Bible paints a different picture. The Bible portrays God to us as the one who created everything. The God of the Bible is not playing hide and seek with humanity. God has not left a tiny trail of breadcrumbs or several confusing jigsaw puzzle pieces behind saying, if you could just configure these in the right way, then you'll find your way to me. No, God is saying something entirely different in scripture. And it is this, that I'm going to reveal myself to humanity. And one of the ways he does that is through creation. And I will make it so plain that you won't have to look very hard or very far because it'll be apparent that I've created the world. The book of Psalms is a book in our Testament that is a book of worship. It's a book of prayers and a book of praise throughout the book of Psalms, 150 of them. What the psalmist is doing is worshiping, honoring and glorifying God. But in some of the Psalms, like the one we're going to look at today, one of the things we find is one of the reasons why God is to be worshiped and God is to be praised. Psalm 19 divides itself in half. There are two parts and the first part deals with what we might call natural revelation. And it deals with what creation tells us about God and why he is worthy of worship and praise. And then it goes into a more specific reason for that. This morning, what I want us to see from the first six verses of Psalm 19 is what creation says to us about God through natural revelation. What is God communicating to us? Number one, creation's testimony. The heavens, David says, declare the glory of God. The heavens, when you look up and see what God created, David says, the heavens testify to us about God, that he is, in fact, glorious, that God is marvelous. Now, when you read throughout scripture, sometimes we talk about design and arguments for God's for his existence based on the design and the precision that we see in the world. Places like Hebrews three and verse four says that every house is built by some man, but he that built all things is God. And you can look out in creation and see that God created us. And one of the evidences for God's existence is the creation that exists. But David does not say the heavens tell us that God is there. The heavens say more than that. They tell us what kind of God is there. 
The heavens say that, yes, God is there. But when you go out and look at the stars and the sun and the moon, David says the heavens declare that God is, in fact, glorious. As a shepherd boy in Palestine, I'm sure many nights David stared up as he was herding those sheep and he beheld the stars and all of their glory. And as we behold them, there are certain questions that should fill and flood our minds like, look at all this beauty and wonder and grandeur. What type of God would create this? And David's answer is a glorious one. The heavens declare that God is worthy, that God is a God of majesty, that God is a God of beauty and intricacy. We sang a song this morning, holy, holy, holy. And that's what the heavenly being said in Isaiah 6. But in verse 3, they say, holy, holy, holy. The whole earth is full of God's glory. And creation itself tells us that. Before you ever open up a page in the Bible, you can go out and view creation. You can go out and view the galaxies. And David says, you'll come to this conclusion that the God of the Bible is glorious. When God delivered Israel through the Red Sea in Exodus 15 and verse 11, they sang the song of Moses. And in Exodus 15 and verse 11, they cried, oh, Lord God, who is like you? What God is like you? Glory and holy in majesty and in power. They knew that God was a deliverer and they also knew that God was majestic and impressive. Every parent has known this frustration to send their child into a room to retrieve an item only to have them come back in record time. Three seconds to be exact and to say it's not there. I didn't find it. And mom and dad goes back into the same room moments later, comes out with the item retrieved and with the statement, something like this. It was there. You just didn't look hard enough. Sometimes you talk to people about God. Do you know the glorious God of the Bible? Do you know the God of heaven? Somebody says, I went, I looked, I didn't find him. And David says in Psalm 19 and verse one, oh, he's there. You didn't look high enough. Isaiah 40 and verse 25, Isaiah says, to whom then will you liken me or who do you will compare me with, says the Holy One. Lift up your eyes on high and behold, who has created all of these things that brings out their host by number? He's all the stars and by the greatness and power of his might. He's strong in power. Not one fails. The heavens tell us that God is glorious and amazing. And David says, you can see that in God's creation. Number two, the heavens tell us something about the continual reminders that the stars and the heavens give us. The heavens declare the glory of God. The sky above proclaims his handiwork. But look at verse two. Day by day pours forth speech and night by night shows knowledge. There is no speech or language. Their voice is not heard. The second thing that David says is not only that creation's testimony tells us God is glorious, but their continual reminders. Sometimes you watch a crime show or something like that and they have they have the victim they have the crime but they have minimal evidence and no witnesses and a detective may say something along these lines if these walls could talk maybe they would be able to tell us who did this deed who did this crime david says about creation the heavens speak on behalf of god day by day they utter speech the stars and the moon and the galaxies they speak up in behalf of god they pour forth knowledge they tell us things about who god is Moses wrote in Genesis chapter one and verses 14 through 19 that on day four, God hung the lights in the expanse of the heavens. And he says that God did that in order to mark the days and the times and the seasons and the years and to give light on the earth. But this verse says another reason why God did that is so that as we go out and behold the stars, the sun and the moon, we might wonder who hung them. And then we might come to this conclusion by the word of the Lord were the heavens made. And all of the host of them by the breath of his mouth, Psalm 33 and verse six, he commanded and it was done. He spoke and it stood fast. God created the heavens and the earth and we have continual reminders. 
said in the beginning of this lesson that it's impossible to miss God. God's going to make sure through his revelation that we don't miss him. If we only lived one day on earth, based on what David is saying about God and creation in Psalm 19, we'd have enough to draw us to him. But David says something even better. David says that if you behold the heavens and you say to God, I don't really care about that. And you try to turn away from them. Don't worry. They'll be back tomorrow. Day unto day pours forth speech and night to night shows knowledge. Knowledge about what? Yes, the heavens tell us about God. But what exactly do they tell us? They pour forth knowledge. Knowledge about what? The heavens not only tell us that God created them, but they also tell us the kind of God we serve. The same loving God that allows the sun to rise day after day and the moon to appear night after night. David is saying through this passage that that same God, you can depend on him to be faithful to you day in and day out. You can depend on that. Psalm 68 and verse 19 says he daily loads us with benefits because that's the kind of God he is. How sure can you be that tomorrow, if God allows tomorrow to come, that the sun will rise? How sure are you that tonight the moon and the stars will make an appearance as sure as you can be about that? You can be equally sure that God will be and will do good. Psalm 85 and verse 12 says God does good. That's all he does. Our God has one channel, one gear, and it is awesome. David says the heavens testify to that reality. Now, quickly, here's number three. The heavens go throughout all the earth. They're God's first evangelists. There's no speech or no language where their voice is not heard. They're heard everywhere. God wants to save everybody in the world. God wants all of humanity to come to know him. And the way that he communicates that is he allows the heavens to speak in his behalf in every place. What does the sun say in Russian? What does the moon say in Spanish? What do the galaxies say in Hebrew? And what do the stars say in Greek? They all say the same thing. Yahweh is awesome. None of this is an accident and neither are you. God loves you. God cares about you. And he wants everybody in the world to know that. This idea about them going forth through all the earth, they're his first evangelists. The first missionaries in the world were God's world, his creation. And as they marched throughout the world, everybody in every place, religious researchers have found no place where everybody in a society is atheistic. Because as long as individuals can look up at creation, they'll be drawn back to this same reality. During the French Revolution, a man named Jean St. Bon Andre said to a peasant, he was one of the revolutionists, he said, I can't wait to remove all of your churches and all of your steeples and you'll have no more reminders about your religious superstition. And the peasant responded, sir, but you can't help but leave us the stars. Because as long as they are there, they march throughout all the earth, people will come and want to know more about just who is this God. In the fourth and final place, David says, would you consider the sun? He says his line, his line goes out through all the earth and then he set a tent or a tabernacle for the sun. The sun comes out as a bridegroom on his wedding day and as a strong man runs his course with joy. It's rising is from the ends of the heavens and his circuits in verse six is to the end of them. There's nothing hidden from their heat. David says not only does God create the heavens and the earth, they testify everywhere about what kind of God he is. But then he lifts up one of the greatest stars and he says, would you behold the sun? Now, David's selection of the sun in verses four through six is far from arbitrary. He picks this on purpose because in the ancient Near East, many people worship the sun. They believe that the sun was the God of justice. In fact, there were songs created and sung to the sun in Babylon and in other cultures. But what David says is the true God of heaven is not the sun. The sun is not enthroned. The sun is employed to run the course that God has set for it. 
David says, look beyond the sun. There is one that created it. And that's the one before whom you should bow and worship. That's the one ultimately to whom you will serve. He makes his son to rise on the evil and the good. Matthew five and verse forty five. God is sovereign over the sun. And as it shines in every place, we testify to his goodness. In 2019, students at Union Theological Seminary gathered for what they called a day of worship. And they said they were going to do something different, something they had never done before. They were going to pray and confess their sins to the plants. They were going to have this confession ceremony where they just confess and pray to the plants. I, I don't doubt their sincerity, but they made one of the gravest errors that has been known to mankind throughout the decades. And that is they worshiped and served the creation more than the creator who was blessed forever. God created the heavens and the earth. The heavens are not to be worshipped, but the God that stands behind them. David says, would you behold the sun? Would you behold the stars and the moon and allow it to ultimately draw you to God? The sun is 92 million miles away from the earth, but its exquisiteness can be beheld by every one of us. And if you get too close to the sun, ultimately, they say we'll burn up and die. If you stare too long in its direction... It'll obscure your sight and you could go blind. But if you get close enough to his creator and if you stare long and hard enough at the one that put it in his place to begin with, only then will you truly live. And only then will you truly see the heavens declare that God is glorious. But that's not the last thing that God has said to humanity. God has further revealed himself. And David goes on to tell us about it in verses seven through 14 in this psalm. Neil, come and preach to us. You know, those words convict us as we look at the truth of them, but how do we know them? How is it that we have reflected on what has been said? It's in the very thing that is in the second half of that psalm. If you'll notice that this psalm begins with nature's declaration in verse 1. The heavens declare the glory of God. And it ends with the psalmist's declaration. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart. In verse 2 through 6, you have the very public word of nature. And in verse 10 through 13, you have the very private word of the psalmist. And in the heart and the center of it all, you have a worship and glorification of the word of God. If you look at this psalm structurally, it is a chiasm where you have concepts that are repeated in reverse order. And what's done in the middle of all of that is that the heart and the center of that chiasm is where the main point is being made. And as we look at Psalm chapter 19, that's exactly what is happening. Hiram alluded to the fact that this is a trial that's taking place. And if we look and see that we are all the jurors, all of humanity, sit sit in that position, and that one is on trial and that one is God, there are witnesses that are called one by one. The first witness is nature. The second witness is man. But the star witness in this trial is the word that this God that has been declared to us so powerfully this morning, that that God has not left us to wonder about who He is and how He is. He has given us the Bible. And so as we refer to creation as that general revelation, that natural revelation, when we refer to Scripture, we are referring to special revelation. That is a specific way in which God has revealed himself. And that special revelation is found in this collection of 66 chapters in this one book known as the Bible. Whether you're reading in Psalm chapter 19 or you're reading anywhere else, 
we are seeing God declare exactly who He is and how He is from the Bible. And so as we look throughout Scripture, wherever we are, from Genesis to Revelation, there's one message that God's revelation, that God's special revelation is special. God's special revelation is special. And we see three things about that. That first of all, God's special revelation is special in its quality. If you begin to look in verse 7 through 9, what David does is he lays out a composite picture of God's Word. And we see from that that it is it has a quality that cannot be matched in any way. We see the quality of God's Word in its description. You'll notice some of the synonyms that describe for us what the Word is. It is law. That is, it is instruction that is binding on us. It is testimony, it is a witness, it is a warning, it's a reminder. It's precepts, it's directions that God and responsibilities that God has laid upon His people. It's commandments, it's instruction to lead us in our way. It's fear, and that speaks of the respect and the reverence that it builds in our heart. And it's judgments. It's judicial, it's directions and decisions to make us to know how God wants us to go. God gives us this valiant description of His Word. And in so doing, He shows us what it is that we can count on this Word to be. But you see, it's not just that. You'll notice something else about it. You'll see that the quality is seen in its definition. Now walk back through verse 7 and through verse 9, and you'll see one of two words either there in the text or in in, uh, italics to let us know that that's what is meant. That these things are, or it is. And through this, the psalmist is defining the word for us. You see all the things about it. It's reliable. It's reasonable. It is not false. It's not inaccurate, it's true, it's righteous. And so as you see something that is described in the way that it is with those synonymous terms, how else would we think that it would be? What else would we expect of something of such high quality in its description? By its definition, we see what it is. But we also, as we look at its definition, its nature, we come to understand that God through that is helping us to see, if you want to boil all of those definitions down into one word, the word is trustworthy. In 1955, Ford Motor Company employed all of its market and research and posters and they asked all the buying public to help them to create the ultimate success in an automobile. And so they took that all of that information together. And they promised the buying public that they were going to bring them the best vehicle that had ever been made. And yet, when it came off the assembly lines, it was too ugly. It was too unreliable. It was too large. And it was too, frankly, weird. As the pollsters began in the marketing research to reach out and ask customers or potential customers about the name, they, the people kept saying, are you saying pretzel? But it was the Edsel, which is in the Automotive Lemon Hall of Fame. You know, the Word of God is not like that. There are so many things in this world, people and things, that we put before the the general public for consumption. And they'll say, it is the greatest thing ever. There's never been anything like this, and it never holds up to the promise. 
But you look at God's Word on the other side of that. It is challenged. It is disputed. It's doubted on every hand. And the more that it is buffeted, the more that it shines, and the more that we see that it is in its nature what the psalmist here says that it is. But we also look further than that and we see that the dividends that it pays off. There are benefits. It makes wise the simple. It, it rejoices the heart. It enlightens the eye. It endures forever. It's righteous altogether. When you take the Word of God and you begin to examine it, there is a message about its quality for us to consider. And so with this message of its quality, we're not surprised we look at God's special revelation and we see that God's special revelation is special with the quality that it promises. You know, there are products out there everywhere that speak to the quality that they bring. Quality is job one. Quality is our main ingredient. Quality shines through from cars to clothing to uh, every kind of product. There's a boasting about its quality. But God's Word lives up to the billing. And the thing that's amazing is that all these uh, material things that promise quality, in the end they're going to be burned up. There's one thing that's going to endure forever. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my word will never pass away. Matthew 24 and verse 35. As we look at God's special revelation that David holds out to us, we see that it is special in its quality. But we also see that it is special in its desirability. With qualities like David has laid out before us, surely it's something that we will greatly desire. He says, more to be desired are they than gold. Yes, than much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and the honeycomb. You know, gold is trading now for about $1,850 an ounce. Almost $60,000 a kilogram. Did you know that 56% of the entire world, uh, country's reserves of gold are being housed in this state? Up at Fort Knox, it has a market value of $236 billion. And it is guarded by some of the finest security that you'll find anywhere in the world. And yet there's something amazing about material things like money. That is, the more that you have it, the more that you want it. That as you have it, you never get to a place where you feel like you've got enough. And not only that, when you think about what it is that you do have, the concern is that you're going to lose what you have. And it appears that the more we have, the more that this is the case. And so David says it's more to be desired than gold, even fine gold. It's also sweeter than the honey. You know, the scientists have measured it and they've told us that honey is technically sweeter than sugar. Not only that, it has been that way throughout civilization. The oldest depiction of a human being eating honey is on a cave drawing in Valencia, Spain, and it dates back thousands of years. And yet, it continues to be popular. Every year, two million tons of honey are being produced all over the world. And you begin to think about honey and, and the benefits that it has. It's a digestive aid. It is a wound healer. It's an antibiotic. But you know, if you eat too much of it, 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 it causes weight gain. It causes cavities. It causes tooth enamel to decay. It can even cause digestive problems and it can even cause allergic reactions in some. But even honey at its best, which we all love, is that which is only going to have a temporary effect. 
And so David lays alongside of the word this contrast of things that most people love and like. And that's material things and something that's sweet to the taste. And so the contrast is set up for us. In Psalm 119 and verse 72, David says that I love your law more than thousands of pieces of gold and silver. In Psalm 119 verse 103, David says to us that the word of God is sweeter than honey, sweeter to the taste. In Proverbs 24 verse 13 and 14, Solomon says to his son, get honey, honey's good to the taste, and the honeycomb is sweet to the mouth, but wisdom will be to you in that way. As you think about how powerfully Hiram has laid out for us God's greatness and His awesomeness through nature, David sets a contrast for us. The physical sun brings heat, but only the Word can bring light. The Word will bring physical, the the world will bring physical life, but the Word brings eternal life. And so he shows us that a word from a God as majestic as this, surely we will want it, we will hunger after it, and will thirst for it. When we look at God's special revelation, it is also special in its ability. And he begins to draw this psalm to a close in verse 11 through 13 by showing us the absolute majestic power of the word over at least three things. That God's Word is that which has an ability that's stronger than or over the future. You notice in verse 11, it warns us about the things that we should not do in the future. It tells us the great rewards that follow when we do what God says with regard to our future. He looks ahead and he says that there is no tomorrow too frightening. There is no temptation so enticing that it eclipses the power of God's Word. We see the ability of the Word over the future. We also see the ability of the Word over our hearts. When I look at the Word, the psalmist talks to me about those things that I might do without knowing. I might not even do it without thinking about it. God's Word is the perfect heart monitor. Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 12 says that the Word of God is living and active and sharper than a two-edged sword, piercing even the dividing asunder of soul and spirit and joints and marrow, and it is a discerner of the thoughts and intentions of the heart. When I see what David says about the Word with regard to my heart, I understand that it comes upon me in such a way as David describes it, that it is a thunderclap. But it's also a ray of sunshine. It's a rebuke, but it's also an encouragement. And this will get down into my heart and it will help me to be what God wants me to be, what I was meant to be. But it also shows its ability over my sin. The Word of God can keep me back from rebellion. It can keep me back from willful sin. That is, deciding in my heart that I'm going to take a course or a path that leads away from God and from separation from Him. When I look at God's power and His Word and its ability over sin, I see that I don't have to be a slave to sin. I don't have to be dominated by sin because of God's Word. You know, when we look at everything that the psalmist says in Psalm chapter 19, verse 1 through 13, we see a picture that's laid out for us. That when we see what nature has to say and we see what the Word of God has to say, how can we not but respond with what we will say? And so the psalm closes... With these words, a dedication, a commitment. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. You know, every one of us leave a footprint and a fingerprint and an imprint. 
a footprint because we are going somewhere. And that if we look out behind us, in a, at least in a figurative sense, there are a long line of people, longer than we might imagine. And our lives are yelling out to them, follow me. But where are we going? A fingerprint. Because our lives touch so many different lives. Your life touches more lives than you'll never ever know on this side of time. In Ecclesiastes 9 and verse 9, it is implied that our hands find something to do. And what the psalmist would say here is, make the most of it for God. And an imprint. Because every single person present here today has a circle of influence. There are people that know you. And of the people who know you, what do they say if they were to ask what one word describes you or me? Would they say, oh, that person is a gossip. That person is a hothead. That person is selfish. That person is dishonest. There are some, we would say, that we know that we would characterize in that way in our lives. Or would somebody look at us and would they say, oh, they're so full of joy. They are loving. They are honest. They are gentle. They are Christ-like. You see, we want our lives to be acceptable in His sight. And that's what the the psalmist ends with by saying, Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, the one who is my rock, the foundation upon which I stand on, and the Redeemer, the one who saves me from my sins. And it is the Word of God that can and will guide our footprints, our fingerprints, and our imprints. God is on trial. And God is okay with that. He has laid Himself out here for our inspection. And He says, I want you to look at all that's been made. Surely it yells out to you, I am. Look at the crown of my creation, that which is made in my image, the human being who was brought before us through this psalm. And we see the effects of God in our hearts and our lives. And see His Word. God's not left us to flounder, to wonder. We understand that every life has an origin, it has a purpose and a destiny, but it also reveals our greatest problem and its only solution. It's not just concerned with the here, but also the hereafter. And so God's Word lays it out there for it and says, with all that I am, there's more. There's what I've done. And what I have done is I have provided for your salvation to be your Redeemer. This morning, God calls out from His Word. He encourages us to be responsive to it. And that Word reveals a Savior who left equality with God. God the Son came to this earth, lived a perfect life, was crucified on a cross to be a substitute for our sins. He was buried in a tomb. On the third day, He rose again. He lives forevermore, having ascended to heaven and is at the right hand of God, living to make intercession for us, being our mediator, our advocate, and our high priest. And He longs for us to be reconciled to God through Him. The message of God's Word from cover to cover is God loves us so much that He gave everything for us. Perhaps someone here this morning is very close to making that decision. Be obedient to the gospel of Jesus Christ. You've heard God's word. You believe that Jesus is the Son of God. You want to change your heart that leads to a change of life and repentance. And you want to be baptized to reenact the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. To rise to walk in newness of life, your sins having been forgiven. 
Or maybe you're a child of God who wants to be reconciled to the great God of Psalm 19, the great God of His Word. If we can help you in some way, we're going to stand during this moment of invitation to receive you. If you want to respond publicly, perhaps you want to talk to us privately, we'd love to help you in any way that we can. Won't you come right now as we stand together and sing?